It is an absolute recipe for a tsunami that's coming down the road, a tsunami of burnout, a tsunami of mental unwellness, a tsunami of disconnection. Hello, it's Andrew May and welcome to another episode of the Strive Stronger podcast. I read a recent article that burnout has gone global. In fact, workplace stress and burnout is estimated to cost the Australian economy just under $15 billion per year. With the acceleration of digital connectivity, ambiguity, constant change, stress and anxiety, our lives have been tipped upside down. Joining me to talk about how to become burnout proof is Dr. Tom Buckley. (laughs) Thanks, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be back. You and I have been living, breathing this topic of burnout. And, And I think you're very positioned to join me today to discuss because for 30 years you've been working in ICU, so working in extreme life-threatening situations. And you've also worked in sport and you've been an ultra-endurance triathlete yourself. And I think those two, the extremes, right, is where we learn most about human performance, where we try and stretch, not stab, where we try and bend and not break. Uh, Absolutely. There's a bit of a theme here, isn't there? You bring me in for my lived experiences. Look, burnout is something I'm very familiar with. And I I can talk about two experiences I've had in relation to burnout uh, on a personal level. Of course, burnout, anybody who works in health knows about burnout. And anybody who's received what I would call poor health care knows about burnout. Because uh, if you look at the demographic or you look at um, doctors and nurses in particular in the health system, it's estimated at any given time about 50% are suffering from symptoms of burnout, which is a phenomenal proportion of a critical workforce Mm. suffering burnout. Well, I read recently as well, it was in the AFR, so it was a reputable distribution or a reputable publication that up to 50% of the workforce now is showing signs and symptoms or telling their employees they feel burned out. Now, we've worked together for 17 years, five different business iterations. Last podcast we did, there were some things you told me that I had no idea about. <laughs> so I've, I've, I've got that to go with again today. But before we go through your experience on burnout, and then I'm going to pull the red thread on that, can you please explain what is burnout? And secondly, what is the difference between burnout and high levels of stress, anxiety, and depression? So start with easy questions. Eh? Bur- burnout is not a disease. I think I'm just going to start by saying what it's not. The, the World Health Organization classifies burnout as a syndrome. And there are key characteristics of this syndrome. I mean, the first one is physical and emotional energy depletion. And, and our listeners will know what I'm talking about there. Secondly, chronic exhaustion. Thirdly, increased mental distance from their job. And that can often be expressed through negativism or cynicism. And fourthly, people have this feeling of decreased personal accomplishment. They're the key characteristics of this syndrome. Mm. And when I have been on the verge of burnout myself, and you and I have worked with thousands of people with our online assessments, hundreds in our high-end human performance assessment, we'll get into that in a moment, but, but when I've been there or when I'm working with people and we're working with people together, it's that extreme emotional exhaustion, isn't it? It just feels mm. hard. Going to the shops and getting the groceries and taking them inside is a big task. Uh, you just feel, no matter how much rest, when you push yourself way too far on the burnout continuum, everything's hard. It is hard. And I think one of the difficulties with burnout, I mean, we tend to think of burnout and the term has been coined from uh, job burnout. I mean, I would argue, and I think you would too, that you can burn out from many different ways. And you work with a lot of elite uh, sports 
personalities, sports stars, champions, and and they can suffer from burnout. You might argue that their job was their sport, and of course the burnout's coming from that. But on an individual level, you can have relationship burnout. You can have uh, burnout from many different triggers. But I think predominantly looking at the body of research out there, it's coming from a body of literature from the healthcare professionals, which is now being recognized as not necessarily unique to healthcare professionals. I think one of the things you've got to ask yourself is why why do do health professionals suffer burnout? And if I start to tell you some of the things that have been shown in really good quality research studies, I think our listeners will start to associate that in their own life. One of the first things is workload. Workload has been shown to be highly predictive of the risk of burnout. Pressure, health professionals work under pressure. That pressure can be constant and that's a real trigger for burnout. Health professionals work in chaos. You you spoke earlier about working in ICU. You can predict the next two minutes if you're lucky, and even in that two minutes, you might have saved two lives. So, So chaos is another factor. So there's a degree of unpredictability that contribute to burnout. Then there's things around systems, resources that can actually influence people's um, satisfaction at work. And we see this in the health system where often we often say the bureaucracy gets in the way of good healthcare delivery. And that can really frustrate clinicians and can become a real source of burnout where you have to do so much clerical work and you think, well, I didn't do 10 years in, in university to learn how to fill in a computer form, but actually there's a reason for it and this is how the system works. Shift work is a big factor for health professionals, um, as it is for many people who in today's 24-hour society, it's not just hospital workers. Well, I was going to say, what's the difference work. between shift work and mobile phone connectivity, where you are bombarding your sympathetic nervous system, your brain's in constant beat of brainwaves from 6 a.m. in the morning to 10 or 11 p.m. at night. So a lot of people are doing shift work. They don't even realize it. Yeah, and, and you know, we talk about shift work. We, we, we put the word work, but of course, you may work a long day in your, in your paid job, but then you go home and you have another job and another responsibility that might not finish until all hours of the night. So I think, you know, those boundaries around day workers, shift workers, we do have to accept that shift workers do tend to have um, other health challenges that non-shift workers don't get. Mm. Um, you know, shift workers tend to be five times more likely to suffer from depression symptoms and, and as many other, you know, physical fatigue as well with shift workers. Um, there, there are many additional stressors for shift workers which would make them even more prone to burnout. But one of the other things too uh, that comes up in the literature that it's often the little things, and I often often become aware of this at home. That the little things we all know, the little things at home, can get in each other's nerves. In the context of work, it's often those little things that trigger people into that road of burnout, and those little things might be like not putting the filling the paper back up in the the photocopying machine. It might be not changing the toilet roll in the shared bathroom. It, you know, those little things can grind on people. And when you put that into the context of pressure, into the context of unpredictability, those little things can become the triggers where people actually start to lose it. So for anyone listening to this, if their partner has said, put the toilet roll holders back or put that back in the drawer with all the peanut butter, does that mean their partner's on the verge of burning out? Uh, it might be that their <laughs> partner's trying to trigger them on the <laughs> Or, or maybe they're trying to stimulate a conversation. But I think, you know, if we take it purely from an empirical research perspective, 
people who have suffered burnout and, and we've you and I have worked with many clients who've, who've been on the brink or suffer burnout, they will often be fixated on the little things. Mm. And it can be a, a, you know, it can be a whole process to come back upstream to see why did that little thing trigger this perception of burnout. I had a client say to me a few years ago, I don't think I've shared this with you. He said he feels burnout is like a piece of toast. And if you feel the toast is cooking and you can pull it out of the toaster, okay, and then you can let it sit. But if you leave it in on fire, you know when you go to a toaster, (laughs) like when we used to travel and you go to a hotel and you put it in and someone had the sitting on five and you've got burnt toast. And he said it was like that. He's trying to scrape everything back. And it was a really good analogy because I have read if people are extreme on that fatigue scale, emotional fatigue, sometimes they actually have to change careers. And interesting, just piecing together a few things you've said. Herbert Freudenberg, who's an American psychologist in the 1970s, studied your profession, the medical profession, where he first came up with the term burnout. But it's evolved so much more because it was just about work. And what you're saying, it's about work and life and family and fitness. And it's everything in our lives now because in Australia, Monday, 16th of March, when Morrison told us to work from home, that just put a whole lot of anxiety, a whole lot of pressure a whole lot of digital acceleration on everybody, and we weren't prepared for that. That's right. And and interestingly, people are still experiencing similar responses. And I find that phenomenal that actually, if anything, while we've prepared and we've done a lot of work to be able to work flexibly and we understand and people have probably built up their stack of toilet rolls and everything to be prepared for it, we're still seeing the same response. So... As a segue, we, we've discussed what burnout is. What's the difference between burnout then and this chronic stress, this anxiety and, and, and depression? That, that's a loaded question, and I'm not sure I'm going to give you one or two sentences to satisfy an answer on that because there is still a lot of debate around what burnout is. People experiencing burnout can also be on the trajectory of experiencing depression or many of the symptoms of depression are quite similar to burnout. Mm. But people with burnout don't necessarily get depression. So not everybody with burnout gets depression. And likewise, not everybody who has depression has it because of burnout. So it's a tricky one to differentiate. What what is common in there is that there is a degree of mental fatigue Um, There is a degree of physical fatigue. And really to unpack the differences is really why people like our colleague, Dr. Nicola, who works here with Strive Stronger, they spend years and years learning how to diagnose the difference. So I'm not going to do it injustice by trying to do it, except to say that there is some overlap and burnout can be a significant trigger of depression. And likewise, um, somebody who has depression will be more at risk potentially of having burnout. With stress, um, stress is definitely one of the core elements of burnout and the features of stress, whether whether we and we can talk about psychological and physiological stress, um, they are both key features of burnout. But stress, physical and psychological are also key features of engagement. So it's that it's this sweet spot, isn't it, between having enough. As I said in the introduction, we want people to stretch, not stab. We want them to bend and not break. Now, and I need to disclose as well, anyone who is listening to this going, 
I have felt really fatigued, really down for three or four weeks. Go see a medical professional or a healthcare provider. Take the proper course. You know, get a referral. Go, go check it out. Don't just listen to this podcast and go. Oh, I don't have depression. Go see a medical profession if you are worried about how you've been feeling. Absolutely, because I think one of the one of the worries for health professionals in in the mental wellness mental health space is that people self-diagnose using a lot of tools. You're not telling me anyone uses Google. Like my ten year old son diagnosed; he's got severs. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's a little bit like you can you can often slot yourself into a, a group you know a group of symptoms that you see associated with a label that we call a diagnosis. With mental health and mental wellness, the unpacking, the uh, labeling, if we want to call that, um, get, can be quite dangerous if it's not done by a health professional, um, because you might not actually be getting to the true core of what's going on. Um, and I think my advice for people is that, you know, once again, if you are struggling, just like you said, then do take that step. People tend to know with burnout, they tend to have that strong association with work. They tend to have symptoms that are you know, disengagement with work, lack of joy from work. But that doesn't necessarily mean they don't have lack of joy from other things in their life. And it doesn't mean they're completely disengaged with other things in their life, although it can move across to the, their life. And so I think there are there are differences, um, but rather than guessing, it's it's definitely worth having a proper focused assessment to because the solutions might be slightly different for different mm. people. And we have come up with five factors, you and I, yeah. to inoculate people against burnout. We're going to wait to make sure people keep listening. But one thing that I've learned working together, it's the two E's. It's a real balance when we, when we approach performance between evidence, so looking at the research, and you've told me a lot about that, and experience, and, and you told me I've taught you a bit about that, and, and we found a sweet spot in the middle. So with evidence and experience, we've got the five factors, but let's just draw on the experience a little bit more. We've assessed thousands of people over the last 10 years in a few different business variations. We've assessed hundreds of executives, entrepreneurs, performers that you sometimes see on the TV, athletes, everything from heart rate variability, doing 48-hour ECGs, doing blood work where you're doing vitamin D and cortisol and DHEA and a whole lot of metrics as well. So what are you seeing in our lab? I... I how long do we have? Um, the biggest thing, I'm going to reflect on a client I've worked with recently, and you, you'll know who this is, and we obviously won't mention names. If I look at somebody who comes to me and we do our assessments, physiological, do our blood work, um, do our psychological testing, there's a pattern. There's a pattern you see with people when they're on the verge of burnout, and it's really easy to pick up. It is now that we've seen it so many times. So the first thing is that there's generally on the scales, it's generally lower on the satisfaction of life scale to what I would expect. And what I've learned over many, many years is that income rarely correlates with our satisfaction with life scale. And so um, that's one scale I'll usually see a reduction in. The second scale I'll usually see reductions in is a, a psychological detachment or psychological recovery. And it would be, I don't think I've ever seen anybody who's scored low in their psychological 
uh, detachment have high satisfaction with life scores. So you start to see this pattern of inability to disengage from work. So in layperson's terms, psychological detachment is switching off. So it yeah. means leaving work at work, which is hard now because work's at the kitchen bench or in the spare bedroom. Yep. But some strategies we'll talk about is how do you shift gears and leave work physically and psychologically. So and and so that then spills over into other aspects. It spills over into their relationships because they're not switching off. So you, you'll often get clients who'll talk about that. Yeah, you know, they've been told by the wives that they're 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 suffering from presenteeism. You know, um, they're they're there, but they're but they're not there. You know, they're there, but their head is in work or their head's in emails, etc. So you so see I'm that spill kept, over. I wasn't listening, mate. You have to say that again. <laughs> <laughs> So, so you'll see that spill over into their lives. It'll spill into their relationships. And so they're, they're, um, when you look at their personal relationships and connections, you will see that there's some trouble in there. And, and sometimes that trouble will have been there a long time and may be one of the symptoms. And sometimes it will be quite acute. And when I see that it's been recent and it also coincides with this pattern, then you start to see that it's a mm. spillover. I still haven't worked out which client it is yet. And we're going to maintain confidentiality because we've seen so many people lately We've had some old clients come back. Every week we're getting people reach out, either individuals who want coaching or they want programs for their organization because of this fatigue. But when I go through that low satisfaction with life, always on, so there's no psychological detachment yeah. and spilling into relationship challenges, that's so many of our clients right now. It is. And those relationships are often their, their, their close loved ones at home, but they're often spill over into their work relationships as well. And so then you start to see where they're becoming negative, where they're becoming cynical, where they're becoming disengaged with work. And so their satisfaction with work. And that often seems to coincide with, it can often coincide with people who've achieved things they wanted to achieve. And then they somehow are not getting any more true personal meaning out of, out of their work mm. achievements. And so, you know, something I know you're an expert in uh, around their purpose. One of the things I always see on the scale is that their, their purpose score has dropped down or they're unable to define their purpose to well, it's me. It's a blend between achievement, which is doing stuff and getting trophies or rewards or accolades or money and buying things and fulfillment which is connection, purpose, meaning, um, both, I think, is a sweet spot. We're not saying, you know, don't worry about achievement, just have fulfillment. And then we're not saying just be fulfilled and, you know, give all your money away. I, I think the balance for most people is, is both, but then defining what that is for you. Absolutely. And then that spills again. So it's like this overflowing cup. And, and I guess burnout is that because you just keep stuff going in, but you're not, you know, it keeps flowing over, flows over into the recovery, into their sleep. And so they usually score very low on things like time in nature, uh, physical recovery. And when we start to measure that physiologically, then we see decreased sleep quality. Uh, not unusual to see people struggling to get 50% of their sleep, a quality recovery. It's because that spills over again in the morning. And so what we see then is increased cortisol levels in the morning. And of course, the standard thing, and I can tell immediately from the assessment how they deal with that, by, by checking how many coffees they have before midday. So it's almost like they're, they're propping up the physiology artificially. Mm -hmm. Now, I can talk to you all day about coffee, but I'll keep going to answer your, your original question. 
So you see decreased sleep quality. The other thing you see, and, and um, this is a, a pet area of mine, I always say to you, heart rate never lies. Heart rate never lies. You often don't see a normal circadian pattern on heart rate. Heart rate should drop right down overnight. And in people who are feeling burnout, it often isn't because they're often still switched on and they're still hyped up from the day. So, they so can, when we measure this through an ECG, just for people listening, yeah. how you're getting all this data. So we put the ECG on and we look at, time and day in sympathetic nervous system or stress yep. and parasympathetic recovery. And what we see with so many clients, say they go to bed at 10.30 p.m. thinking they're asleep, they are, but their body's still redlining. So they can still be in stress or sympathetic nervous system for half the night. They can be. And and some, some clients will be what I call tired and wired. So they'll be wired up, but they'll be feeling tired. And that for me is a real, that's an area that we really have to address early because if you don't address that, it's going to be you're going to go down the adrenal fatigue road, um, and so some clients will be you know they'll be hyped up at night. They'll have that big surge at nighttime. They can't switch off. They can't get off to sleep. So their sleep onset is a real issue, and they're wired. They're wired up because everything's coming back again. And some of that wiring up is some of the things they did or didn't do in the morning, which we can talk about in a minute. So you see this decreased heart rate variability, increased heart rate. Um, uh, I would expect their blood pressure doesn't drop as well. And they're really bad prognostic factors for, for wellness. Then if I look at their blood work, there's a pattern. There's a real pattern. If this is a prolonged, not just a, a one-week event, um, with burnout, we're talking about prolonged experience here. What you'll see is morning cortisol levels will be higher than they should be. And that group, that group then will be at real risk of Cortisol is really good. It's like a bundle of energy. You know, you need that. Um, but if you have too much of it, of course, you're wired again. And then you add in extra additional stimulants to that. You become immunosuppressed. That's one of the things that happens over time with increased cortisol. Cortisol also robs you of other hormones. And one of them that, that we measure in the lab, DHEA. And, and DHEA is a precursor to um, uh, estrogen, to testosterone. And so what I see in a lot of men who are in this burnout state is their testosterone levels drop. And there's good research showing association with low testosterone with, with several disease processes. But there's also good research showing low testosterone with risk of depression and low mood. So so you start to see the pattern of, you know, the, the how people then start to have low mood states, how to have, start to feel anxious, maybe have some symptoms that we would associate with depression, lack of feel lack, lack of satisfaction becomes this cyclable thing. Um, and then the and then for other people what will happen is they'll become more estrogen dominant and then um, you know that that's not a great thing either. So you get this biological sort of psychological stress spilling over into their biology and then that compounding their psychological stress. And another factor that I see that many listeners might be surprised to that, that I mentioned is it's very, very normal when I see people in chronic stress states, whether it be pre-burnout or in burnout state, generally have very low vitamin D levels. Mm -hmm. A phenomena we see here in, in Australia, which always surprised me in such a blue sky country. And once again, low vitamin D levels associated with low testosterone is also associated with higher risk of depression. So you have this psychological state that spills over into your behavior that then over time spills into your physiology, which then makes your 
psychological state even worse. And it's like, a, a, it's like I often think it's like a, a hamster on a treadmill and it just can't get off, it just can't get off. And, and so there's a, a lot of unpacking you have to do to get off that treadmill and then start putting all the building blocks back in again. So with what you're talking about, that's our high-level human performance assessment. So if anyone wants information about that, you know, connect with us, we can put you through. But for people who either don't have the time, the resources, or for whatever reason can't do that, I haven't shared this with you, but at a workshop, I was talking about the work that you and I do with an executive group, and we had a, a half-day workshop on executive performance. At morning tea, one of the guys came up and said, Andrew, can I have a chat? Just one-on-one. I went, yeah, yeah, great. He said, all the stuff you're talking about that you and Dr. Tom do sounds fantastic. I know what's going to happen when I do your assessment. I said, what do you mean? I said, how do you know? Like, we haven't, you know, shown me someone's heart rate, you say, and then show me their blood. They don't lie. He said, I know how I'm going to score. I said, why? He said, well, I don't laugh, I don't focus, and I don't get hard. And I said, you're going to have to explain the last one a little bit more. He said, well, I'm not having fun enjoying my life. I can't focus because I'm all over the place. He said, and I can't have an intimate experience without taking a little blue tablet. I went, oh, don't get it. Right. He said, my body has stopped working. He said, so I know exactly from what you've said. I don't need to do a human performance assessment. I just thought that was really telling. He doesn't laugh. He can't focus and he doesn't get hard. Now, you, you might want to completely avoid those ones, but how many men do we get saying after we work with them, can I tell you something? Downstairs works like I'm 20 years younger again. It's amazing when you work with the body properly and look after it, it works. And when you fight against the system, it doesn't. So for anyone listening to this, if you, can't, if you don't laugh, if you don't focus, and let's be a bit more generic, if you aren't finding that intimacy like you used to, that's probably a red light saying you need to do something about this. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's something we do hear a lot of. Authentically, I've lost count of the amount of clients, male and female, who have contacted me, you know, or towards the end of, of um, you know, their next assessment or down the road. And they've come back and they've said to me, but my relationships are so much better. And you talk about the physical aspect, but I think what what I hear more than the physical aspect is that their their emotional intimacy, their connection with their family members, and often as with kids as well, that drastically improves when they sort out the building blocks, the, they sort out some of the the things that are is actually causing their physiological state to be so disrupted that their mental well-being is is seriously um, uh, you know the quality is decreased. And once you you know and once you go back upstream and you work on some of the physiological capacity metrics that we talk about here, the things that give us resilience to stress, the things that allow us to switch on recovery, the things that occupy our mind. Other than work, once you start to build them in, um, then you have space to love again. You have mm. space to listen to your kids. You have time for your significant other. You have time to listen to people at work. And the amount of times people have said to me that they didn't realize how little they were listening. They were really listening to themselves. And really with them, I've always gone back to the physiological metrics and looked at the ones that don't lie. Because often in the first encounter, they will be telling me a story that is completely different in denial to the physiology that's in front no, of me. No, we have never had middle-aged men <laughs> rocking in here telling us they're awesome. And it's then... not just men. <laughs> it's not just men. And I think we build up this ideal at a young age, this ideal of what our lives will be like and what um, success will be. And I think when we get into our 30s, as our physiology changes, what we did in our 20s no longer works. 
Yeah, and we can't keep stealing because we don't replenish as mm -hmm. quick. And also what we valued at 20 in relationships is very different to what we value at 40. And so in the middle, our physiology is changing, our resilience to stress is changing, our endocrine system is deteriorating. And I, and I hate saying this, but you know, once we pass 30 and particularly 35, it's a downhill slope physiologically from there, unless you do something to push it back up again. You've got to pull every lever possible. And we wrote about that in MatchFit, um, gratuitous plug, uh, but we spoke about you've got to move, fuel, recharge, connect, think and play. And I find now as I get through my 40s, you've got to pull those levers more and more and more and more. Now we could sit here and talk about physiology and neuroplasticity and bioharmony for hours. Let's wrap up on the physiology stuff there. I want to throw a question on you that I didn't have in my running sheet. Have you been burnt out? At least once. At least once that I would have recognized and admitted. Interestingly, I've never felt burnout from my clinical work. Um, you know, the, the lifespan of a specialist intensive care nurse is generally about four years before they start to suffer burnout. Um, some, that, that's the, the average. Some can work their whole careers in there. I never got that because I've always had strong outside work interests in sport, in, in, in many elements of my life that I've always, I've always been very good at leaving work behind. So I don't feel like I burned out psychologically. I've definitely burned out physiologically. And, and that was from doing so much sport and, so, and, and actually probably putting so much of myself into when I was doing, particularly doing Ironman triathlon, putting, you know, working 40, 50 hours, training 20 hours, young family, young kids, wife, the, the cup was over full. And, and so I did recognize that and got to the point where for me, physiologically, body was not performing the way it should. Things like blood sugar going up, heart rate staying up. Um, and when I did my profile, endocrine profile, testosterone in the ground, cortisol levels high, vitamin D in the ground. The, the exact scenario of what I see in clients is exactly what I experienced. And I was in my late 30s, so it was like, how can that be happening? And where that started to spill over the trigger for me is where that started to spill over to a problem was when you're getting irritable. It's when going for a walk with your wife becomes a stress. Yeah, not because you don't wanna go for a walk, but because you just, you just, you just too no tired, capacity. you know, capacity. And yes, and, I, and a, a crossover for me was one day when my wife said, oh, let's go for a walk down the beach. And I was like, oh, I'm too tired. But that particular day I had done a six hour bike ride. So how can you be too tired to go for a walk? And so for me, the, that was spilling over into irritability. It was spilling over into not having a lot of time for others, recognizing you're not listening to anybody because you're just so focused on this, this sporting goal. And for me, that was probably my compensation for my professional life. Mm. And for me, I had to do all the unraveling we just talked about that we do with clients, did all that right back again and then build it back up in a more productive way. And, and I think the key here physiologically is to find that minimal effective dose is a term we use in, in pharmacology and medicine, you know, trying to find a minimal dose that's most effective. And I think it's the same when it comes to um, a lot of things in our life. Uh, sometimes those doses are what give us so much joy, we want to do more and more and more again. And for me, that what happened with, with, with physical exercise was that 20 hours a week wasn't enough. I wanted 30 and it spilled over. So that was for me a, a burnout physiological burnout started to spill over into mental well-being 
fortunately didn't suffer depression fortunately picked up lots of good people around sort of prodding me saying um you know time to do something um and also my own knowledge of recognizing okay this can't sustain forever so that's my my experience with my other experience of witnessing it is that i have worked with so many brilliant clinicians doctors nurses at the peak of their profession burnout and I find that really, really difficult to understand. Well, I did find it really difficult to understand because how that's expressed is often in not having empathy for the patient, not having, not listening to people, therefore you're not getting the right information. That degree of being there, but you could tell or you sort of interpreted them as not caring. And it wasn't that they didn't care. It was that they had no more emotional capacity to give because they were drained. Well, compassion fatigue, you hear about the caring industry. And not just medicine, it can be hairdressers, personal trainers, anyone who's giving their time and attention to others. If you don't put the oxygen mask on and look after yourself, nurture your soul, however that is, mm. you can just go, oh my God, I don't want to see another person again. Even though that's your job, it's why you chose that vocation. And where I saw that spill over in, in a very tragic scenario was with a colleague who was a, a brilliant, brilliant intensive care physician who then post work took himself to a hotel room and ended his own life. And that was a real wake up call for me and many others as to how, how did we not know? How did we not know he was so burned out? How did we not know that he was at the limit? And, and so that woke up me and a lot of my colleagues up to the fact that we have to put our own oxygen mask on before you can, mm-hmm. you know, put it on your, on others around you. The, the literature um, the literature supports that. As I said earlier, about 60, 50 to 60% of doctors and nurses right now are suffering burnout. Society at the moment has a strong appreciation for our healthcare workers. Um, but as soon as this pandemic's over, society will be focused on other things. Those healthcare workers will still be there dealing with life-threatening illnesses, dealing with bacteria and viruses that could kill them should they get it dealing in systems that are not efficient. Um, so I think it's a real time right now to think about who, who are those people. I have tremendous time right now for our shopkeepers, for our checkout uh, attendants in the supermarkets, for our bus drivers, all those people. They must be feeling the exact same stress as what carers are feeling because they're on the front line, they're exposed, it's unpredictable, they don't know what's going to come in front of them. And so we need to be really, really cognizant of their well-being, be really cognizant of their the fact that they are probably in a hyper-anxious state at work every day, taking that home, and they're at very strong risk of burnout. Mm-hmm. I resonate with this. It was not long after we met, probably a year, maybe 18 months, when I had my first experience not reading about burnout, which I did my first degree in sports science. I'd worked with a few athletes who were fatigued. I look back, a few of them probably were on the, on the verge of burning out. But I went close. So that, that, that toast analogy, yeah, I had to scrape a bit back. And it was 3.17 a.m. on a Wednesday morning when I realized I was still at my desk where we used to have the office in William Street with Executive Health Solutions. And I was writing a work-life balance program. How ironic (laughs) is that? I was on a 6 a.m. flight. So if you've done the maths, I'm in the office, 3.17 a.m., turned the laptop off, went home where I lived at Malabar, probably got 90 minutes sleep, back to the airport, flew across the Nullarbor, presented to partners at Ernst & Young, a work-life balance program, felt terrible, fueled on coffees, was okay by the time I got to the presentation, 
as I walked out, I still remember Andrew Holzman, who's a, a, he's a great man, and he, he patted me on the back as we walked out. And he said, Andrew, thanks, you're really making a difference to the partnership, the work you're doing. I just wanted to give you that feedback. I said, oh, Andrew, thanks for the feedback. And as I said that, I had this little voice go, you're full of shit. <laughs> Practice your own medicine, big fella. Yeah. And as I flew across the Nullarbor, it was like my Jerry Maguire moment. And I identified the way I was working wasn't working. Up until that stage, I'd been a fitness trainer, a strength and conditioning coach, but I wasn't doing much on productivity. After that, one, I fixed my productivity pattern. Two, started coaching others. Because I think you teach what you're good at and teach what you've stuffed up. So I rewrote a whole code. And I don't know if you remember this back then, but I I just flipped. And the following Monday, because we used to have a two-hour meeting every Monday, which was a meeting that could have gone for 30 minutes. Funny, every Monday we have a meeting at Strive Stronger. How long does it go for? for 30 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) It's my learning back from there. And I lost all this time because I was in meetings and we got bought by Accor, the French hotel company. So I thought I have to operate like the chairman and board members and people at Accor. And I was just wasting time. So yeah, I was really close. And as I flew back across the Nullarbor, I had two options. One was I was going to quit and there was some financial handcuffs because I'd sold the business. And I I actually thought about that and just going back to sport, which was my comfort zone. Or the second one, I thought, no, no, I'm going to I'm going to turn this around. And thankfully, I chose the second one because since then, the last 15 years, I've done a lot around productivity and I get it when you're in that pain point. So I think we both come collectively from look at the evidence, but the experience. And for anyone listening to this, it's shitty when you're there. It really is. Everything's hard. Everything seems insurmountable, but there is a way out. And that that um, uh, I, I did I didn't know the details of that story. So yeah, we every time we do this, we we learn a bit more about each other. Well, just on that, if I unpack what you said about our clients, and I still haven't worked out <laughs> which one specifically you're talking about because a few of them are, I, I got those similar traits at the moment. But my satisfaction with life at that stage was low. Yeah. Yeah, I, I yeah. wasn't switching off because I, I was like three seventeen a.m. writing a work life balance yeah, program. Yeah. Like, what an idiot! Um, I would have had no emotional regulation. Uh, the relationship I was in was on off on off. I kept saying, "But she doesn't listen to me." <laughs> she probably just thought I was a workaholic idiot. Sorry about that. Um, and I wasn't looking after myself and, and doing activities outside of work that nurtured me because I thought I've been bought by this big French company. All this expectation, interesting, right? As I unpack yeah, this, yeah. it was external, not what I actually wanted. To to do and then when I got to breaking point I was like no screw that that's rubbish go back to basics got everything back again and, and there was one other factor in there which I think a lot of our listeners associate which was th- there was a lot of inefficiency in in your work life oh, a hell of a and, lot. and some of that inefficiency is driven by others and some of it is probably driven by yourself but I actually think that's that's a symptom of burnout but it can also be a cause of burnout and I know myself, I have very little tolerance of wasting time because the more people waste my time with inefficiency, the less time I have for the non-work things. So I get irritated by that. But if I was working in a, a system that is continuously inefficient, that is continuously stealing my personal time, that I, I know I would go down the burnout road just on that factor alone. Mm. So I think recognizing what those triggers are for you. Um, Sometimes the burnout can come from a really poor interpersonal relationship with people at work. Sometimes it can, often it is with seniors. 
um, not always. Often it's with colleagues you're codependent on. And so often what I have to work with clients is to find where the trigger is um, because otherwise they're going to get triggered back into their state mm -hmm. really, really mm -hmm. quick. And sometimes they are a modifiable thing and sometimes they're not. And you spoke earlier about sometimes people leave their job. About 15 years ago, you and I worked with a client that will remain nameless where the only recommendation I had for him, the only one, was to leave his position in a very, very high-flying position because I could do nothing with him unless he did because his physiology was so bad. And you might remember what I said to him. Mm. I said, if you do not make this change, the only thing I can guarantee you is you probably will not be on Earth in 10 years' time. Well, I saw some research. and I, I didn't I think of him. You've just taken me down memory lane. But I read some research recently on burnout that says for a lot of people, they have to change career. Now, it's not if you're tired and fatigued. It's when you yeah. push to the yeah. extreme. Yeah. But for some people, psychologists who are experts in this field will say exactly what you said to our client back then, go and change because you've got to get out of the environment because organisational burnout, we're talking predominantly today about individual burnout. Yeah, There is organisational burnout. It's, it's almost a paralysis of the organisation. And it's when you have messages, when the behaviours don't match the brochures, the brochures or the values. We are a family-friendly organisation on work-life balance, but then you're pushing emails out on holidays and all hours of the night. You know, we reward quality work and promote people, blah, blah, blah. And then I reward you because you've been in there 80 hours. And I say to everyone, oh, Tom, Dr. Tom Buckley has done 80 hours. And Joe, Joe's only done 30. Mate, lift. And I've heard conversations like this. So organizational burnout is a topic that's being studied more. If you're listening to this and go, oh, that's my organization, you can't change the culture unless you get us in at the executive level to cascade down. But primarily what we're wanting to do with this is give people a fix that they can do around the individual. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I like working with the modifiable risk factors. I like modifying them without using drugs because you know, one of the one of the things we're used to as a society is I have this symptom, take this drug. I have that symptom, take this drug. The thing about your adrenals being on, the thing about being in that sort of flight or fright state that, that people often are in when they're in, in burnout or in a prolonged stress state. Um, the thing about having raised cortisol and that, there isn't one drug to fix it. You really do have to unpack and get back to the root cause. And so I think if you look at those modifiable risk factors, you know, we know about 60% of visits to general practitioners are often have some sleep aspect to it. Either sleep's a symptom or sleep is one of the, the factors. So it makes sense to then look at what's interfering with that before you start thinking, well, I need to take a pill to fix my sleep. Mm. So I think it's just going stepping back and it's like peeling an onion right back. And for different people, the trigger will be in different places. And sometimes it will be the organization. That particular client we talked about 15 years ago, who I believe now works in a gym and, uh, and I believe is, is really content with his profession. There was no way, there was no way you could correct any of his physiological state whatsoever, which was, there was no way you could correct it in that environment. Um, as a matter of fact, some of his metrics in his heart rate variability, um, and I've studied thousands in my academic work and research, I have never seen somebody with such poor heart rate variability still be alive. So there was no way at the age of 50 you could go anywhere with him. He had to stop 
had to recover, had to take time out, had to go back and build back up again. And for some people, for him, that required leaving his position. For other people, it may require moving lateral. It may actually require going to a new profession. Um, and it's not unusual now to see that. And, and we see a lot of that in health. We see a lot of people come studying nursing, come studying medicine in their mid-20s, mid-30s as their second or third profession. And for me, that's them now working out what their purpose is, working out what is going to give them meaning in life and making that their priority when they've perhaps chased something that was mm. not so meaningful for them before. You and I have been studying, without even realising it, burnout for a decade and a half. We are now working with, at this present time, some CEOs and executives in top 20 ASX companies and their executive teams on burnout. We've recently written a white paper on it, really looking at the research and the experience on what burnout is. But we've, we think we've spoken enough about burnout. Let's get to the fix, because I'm sure some people are going, come on, Dr. Tom Andrews, stop talking about burnout. You're burning me out. What are the five factors? So the five factors, we're being bold here, saying unequivocally, if you do these five factors, you will not burn out. I, I think we can say that because we have tried and tested this. We're not only aware of it from the literature and the research, but we have tried and tested this for years. If you build these five in and you get the right dose of them, um, you should not burn out. So what are the five? Number one is purpose alignment. Number two is active recovery. Number three is restorative sleep. Number four is physiological capacity. And number five is social connectedness. So I think we might explore each one of those and we'll keep it for anyone who's listening who likes order and structure and may have OCD like me. We can't go into number three. No, 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 stick to number one first. So let's first of all talk about that purpose alignment. Do you want to run with this or do you want me to run with this one? Andrew, you, you, I know you are an expert in this. I, I've seen you in action with this. So I'm going to flip the question back to you. Okay. As the first one is purpose alignment. Uh, how am I going to explain this? A personal story first. When I left KPMG a few years ago, I'd been that guy that, or that girl that you said before that had been so focused on achievement, yet I wasn't sure what was really driving me. I'd sold a few businesses, had worked with you know, national sporting teams, had been had written books with you, regular media work. So it was all challenging me, uh, good for accolades, but underneath there was something missing. So I worked with a guy named Richard Burton, and I, I connected with Richard just before I left KPMG. And we decided for three months that I would say no to everything. I got offered a partnership at a, a competitor of KPMG, a big role, big money. I uh, got offered a role with a sports agency, uh, a startup, a, a guy I know, a mate of mine, a former Olympic rower on a safety startup. And if I hadn't done the work with Richard, I would have said yes. But he said, say no, and we're going to work out your purpose. And it took about three months because I knew the what – the where and the when, but I didn't know the why. And Simon Sinek talks about that. Once you know the why, everything else becomes really clear. And I can remember about six weeks into the coaching consignment with Richard. I won't say the exact language, I'll dial it down, but like, for God's sake, but I like, mate, this is punishing. How is it taking so long to work out my personal purpose? And he said to me, Maisie, you've been in this current body for 44 or 45 years. You can't expect to just work it out in a couple of weeks. This will take you a few months. And true as it was, it took a few months. And when I worked out my purpose, I could just feel like it was the electricity. And now when I coach on this, 
I honor Richard and say he's the guy that helped me uncover my purpose. It'll take you a couple of months. And you just feel it when someone gets the purpose. And whether it's virtual now or face-to-face, the electricity just goes up. And I put this in practice recently. There were two opportunities came up. One was for another startup outside ours. Again, a safety startup, offered equity. And the other one was Parameta as a mental skills coach. And before I interviewed for both, so before I interviewed for Parameta and went back to the people I know at the, the safety startup, I ran it through my personal purpose, which is waking people up to a better way of living, working and leading so that they reach their full potential. And when I did the safety app, Absolutely not. When I did working with Parramatta and back in sport, absolutely yes. So from my personal experience, Tom, and and we could go into the research, but I think we've done enough of that today. Once I worked out the purpose, it helped me make decisions. And, And I see this in our clients as well, that when you get clear on the why, everything else falls into, into line. And that achievement is the, the what and the when, but the fulfillment, that's deeper. It takes time. And, and and that purpose probably changes depending on where you are. Um, because I know I have friends who whose primary purpose was to be, you know, affluent. Their primary purpose was to have a big house. And everything was very focused on that. I don't think that's a purpose. I think that's their primary goal. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because if you asked them at that point what their purpose was, they most of them would have said it was yeah, their so goal. I, I'd argue and say they are really unclear on their purpose, they're focused on achievement and collecting trophies. Yeah. Because a yeah. home is a trophy. Money and, and career being promoted is a trophy. Now, if you can align the both, that's where you get achievement plus fulfillment. So it, I, I reckon the glue between the two is that, a clearly And that's really purpose. interesting because what I've seen, some of those friends now no longer work in those industries because they didn't get any sense of meaning from that mm. work. They were doing it for the wrong reason. So if they were, their goal was to, some of them achieved it and then realized that they had to go and do what they, their real purpose was. Um, some of them didn't because they were so dissatisfied and had career shifts. So that's, that's, that's so yeah, important. And you don't necessarily or you don't have to get it from work. Uh, I, I feel yeah. like I do now from work. I, I get the you know, accolades and achievement that I, I, I want to drive my personality, yeah. but I get the fulfillment that keeps me going. But if you're listening to this and go, I don't get it from work, you can supplement. So let, let, let's with each of these, we've got five summary areas that we did in the white paper as well. So to work out your purpose, number one, articulate your purpose. You've got to invest the time. Spend a couple of months and we'll give people details on how they can download the white paper and they can go deeper on this. Number two is when are you at your best? And again, I, I quote Birdo on this. Uh, when are you either in flow at your best or when do you do activities where time transcends? And then how do you build more of those into your week? The third one is meaning at work. How does work give you meaning other than a paycheck? And, and I know when I coach people, when we coach people, sometimes they say, oh, it doesn't. No, no, go a little bit deeper. So what else do you get at work? Connection. Okay, so you're building cues like reading other people you're working on emotional intelligence you're working on leadership what else oh we did this walk um someone told me from combank we did this wonderful walk can for cancer okay so there's a connection with community so you go a little bit deeper on that and how else are you getting meaning at work the fourth one is supplement and i'm not talking about vitamins not saying it's magnesium or whatever else you need to take it's you can supplement outside of your career meaning if you go hey my career is is here and it's okay not great However, I'm getting the money at work and I'm getting enough connection to keep me going. We'll then join a gardening group or join a church group or a choir or help out some way in your community. 
One of the things I've found, Tom, through coaching and, and, and researching after, not the other way around, right? Experience first and then I went the evidence, is when someone's feeling burnt, not burnt out, when you give back to others, it's amazing what that can do. Yeah, whereas I think of someone working in a bank, a consulting firm, a telco, an energy company, if it's all just work, 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 and there's no give to others, it's an empty vessel. So I think that supplementation can also be giving to other people. That makes you feel good. And then you're getting more from external than you are from work. And the fifth one is you've got to do the hard work. Now, you've got to work on this. It takes time. And we're a quick fix society, right? I've said this before on this podcast to you. We're a drop and drag society. We want the pill, the potion, the bottle and the lotion. I was the same with Birdo. Come on, six weeks. You've got to do the work. Read, explore. And one other thing, if I gave a bonus, I'd ask other people, what do you think is my purpose? Or it might sound a little bit word that rhymes with with Banky, but it might sound a little bit weird. Ask the right person. But I would ask other people. What would you say is my purpose? And Richard got me to do this with a few others as well once I was down that, that exploration and it really helped to articulate. So they're the summary of the five. Number one, articulate your purpose. Two is when are you at your best? Three is find meaning at work. Four is supplement outside of work. And number five is do the hard work. And there's a reason we have them as number one because that work really has to happen for many people before you, I can actually even move forward with physiology or recovery or other areas because you can be tinkering with symptoms otherwise. You have got to start with that core. I and mean, we, we were talking multiple times writing this white paper and just saw our coaching process. So when they do the human performance assessment with you, more often than not, the first session I am trying to work out with them, what's your purpose, what yeah. drives you, doing a lot of the psychological metrics on it. I think in doing this white paper, it was really good that we could sort of get off the dance floor onto the balcony and go, oh, there's a, actually a method in that process. Because unless you get the purpose clearly articulated, or at least start working out what that is, they're going to come back and see you and see me in three years' time and nothing's changed. Yeah, and, and so, oft, so often clients will just want to come and see me and do all the physiology and get all the numbers and then start manipulating it. And I'll have to send them back to you and say, no, we've got to work on this first. And then I can make movement with you in your physiology and your behaviors. And, and so I think it is the logical or the best starting place. And mm -hmm. some people are, it's a continuum. Some people are much further down the road in understanding their purpose, but they often find it difficult to write it out. They don't, they, if you ask them to write it out. And so often I'll ask a client and they'll say, oh yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I'll say, okay, I'm just going to step outside for a glass of water. Can you write it down? And when I come back, they'll have one word, two words or, or, or nothing. Or they'll go something, something, something about the community, about Australia. No, no, that's yeah. not, that, that's your company's, what's yours? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I do this in the workshops. Who, who's got a clear purpose? Yeah, yeah okay. And okay, yeah. write it out, tell the person next to them. Who's got a clear personal purpose? Oh, I thought it was the companies. No, no, no. They're, they're different things. When they align, magic happens. Yeah. But it's a clearly articulated personal purpose, your purpose. And most often what people do write down when I do this exercise, they write down activities, but they're, they're not even scratching the surface. So I think that's a really logical place to start. And I think anybody who is suffering burnout, um, this is the place to start. And as he said, it doesn't come quick. Um, so you really do have to plan for some t time out, reflection time, thinking time. Yeah. And in my opinion, uh, from my own experience of this journey of, of going through this, 
you really got to have a coach to do it with you. It's not something you'll do honestly very well on your own. My frustration was I was a coach and I thought I should coach myself. And yeah. you, uh, one of your favourite U2 songs is Get Out of Your, your Own, own Way. way. <laughs> the second one we looked at is Active Recovery. Now, two, three, four and five need to be done together. But Active Recovery is light movement, light activity, and also getting psychological detachment. Before I give some examples on what active recovery is, what isn't it? We see this so often, Dr. Tom. Uh, busy men, women are at work, running a business, you know, doing what they do in life. Oh, I need a glass of wine. I need a cold Asahi beer. I'm just going to watch a bit of TV to switch off. What does that do from a physiology point of view? Well, you measured in the lab. When you're watching TV, our brainwaves don't get out of beta. Now, we want our brainwaves to shift, ideally to alpha, which is where you relax and recover, and to go right deeper brainwaves. Uh, you know, you have your best ideas in the bath, on a bike, on a bus, in the beach, or when you're reading a book. I call that the five Bs. It's when you get out of beta and into that, that subconscious pattern where your brain relaxes. What happens when you watch TV? TV is designed to stimulate us. It constantly moves. Even bad TV is designed to stimulate us and ads allowed. So when you have a glass of wine, it, it stimulates your sympathetic nervous system and TV keeps you in beta. There's no recovery. And that's why these mechanics, these techniques after work are so important. And we call this transition time. When you finish work, at least five or 10 minutes of an activity, if you can, to decompress, relax the body, switch off the brain. Yeah, and I, I think um, you know, when, when people are in this scenario where they're using coffee as the accelerant in the morning and they're using wine or beer as the depressant at night, they're, they're on the road to physiological burnout. Mm. It's only a case of time. And particularly if there's a pattern of needing more coffee and more wine, then, then you're propping up both sides of the day and you're probably, you probably, your whole internal circadian patterns are probably out of whack. Of course, the answer isn't to stop both. There's a whole unwinding you've got to do. But active recovery, there's a reason we have active recovery before we have inactive recovery in that it is often transitional. The television goes on in our house maybe for an hour maximum in the day, out of choice. Okay, we're not trying to be goody two-shoes or anything. It's because we made that decision that having the television on meant that you were hearing the same news stories, the that same is. hype. And we all know the channel does the worst at this, where they make an absolute mountain out of a molehill of information. They create anxiety. They create a, a, an atmosphere in the house where, where children will be listening as well, that they're getting anxious and they're asking questions. And we made that decision in our house that we would just not watch television unless it was a specific thing to watch something of interest, like a sporting event or a movie or something on Netflix. But we would not have passive television on in the house for that reason. So that's advice I've given many of our clients in the last year. And some of them have said to me, it's been a deal breaker, switch off from the constant news. That doesn't mean don't check the news because we always have that sort of uh, inquisition about what's happening. What I'm hearing on the news is completely distorted sort of emotional news stories. And I don't think that's doing anyone any good. And if that's your relaxation at night to have the news on for an hour and then another hour to see if it changes, um, you are absolutely not actively recovering. The one thing, the one thing that Donald Trump said that I will quote <laughs> is CNN in the morning is constant negative news. <laughs> the one thing, I didn't think I'd be quoting Donald Trump on the podcast to actually give us some value in active recovery, but you know, constant negative news, CNN. 
it sets you up of a morning on a whole pattern. So what are the five things that people can do for active recovery? Number one is transition time. Transition time activities would be stuff like going for a walk, ideally in nature. Uh, swim in the ocean, low activity, not a heart rate. You're not trying to beat your friends on Strava. It might be playing with friends or if you have kids or family members or a partner or flatmates, just doing something with them outside, engaging outside. It could be knitting, uh, it could be baking, it could be painting. So they're all activities that, again, detach you psychologically, a little bit of movement, but not getting the heart rate up too much. So they're all the activities around transition time. The second one, and you and I are big on this by double dipping, try and do them together, daily sunshine. What is it? We see 80% of our executives and entrepreneurs are low in vitamin D. So get 30 minutes of vitamin D every single day. And if you can do that with transition time or exercise, you're double dipping. Number three is grounding. Now, I got grounding from you, so. So gra- grounding is literally being in contact with the soil, um, your skin against the soil. And the best way to do it is to be walking barefoot on soil. And we spend most of our day in these concrete jungles where a lot of us do. And even those that, that don't, are not in a concrete jungle are often wearing um, uh, rubber soles when you're out in the playing fields or out on the farm. And you're not actually touching the soil as much. Now, I think farmers probably are more than us city folk. But there is a, an immense, I would say it's an immense body. There's an evolving body of literature showing that grounding actually has physiological and mental well-being benefits. Um, and one of the things, you're stealing my thunder here, but what about sleep? But one of, one of the things to do if you're having trouble sleeping is to get out of bed and ground yourself. Go and walk on the grass barefoot. As a matter of fact, there are now products you can wear on your foot that have that put soil on your foot that have, they're now being tested. It's crazy. Isn't there's it? a studying. stress pill being, there was a study done at the Marston Hospital um, in, in a cancer institute in the UK, uh, developing a stress pill for people who are terminally ill. If you unpack what was in the stress pill. It was actually uh, a bacteria that lives in the soil um, that's been used and been proven to be effective in reducing stress. And there's also work done where people are actually grounding their bed to the soil. They're earthing their bed and reporting benefits. I think it's worth trying for people, um, but there's certainly a couple of small studies showing that it does help to decrease well, depression clients, symptoms as well. Our clients think we're crazy. We say, look, yeah, we want you to walk yeah. outside in nature, ideally off your mobile phone. Uh, and then they come back a month later. Uh, they're getting some vitamin D. They've got a, a, a natural glow, not baking themselves. And go, I don't know what is happening, but I feel good. Or it's, your body's working how it should be. So number three is grounding. Number four is laughter, fun, and play. Mm. And, and I always ask people this, what do you do for joy? And I often go, well, what, what do you mean? When you're on the verge of burnout and you're really fatigued and everything's just smashing your emotions, we take out all the stuff that fuels us. And we often say, kids, play. Play dates, play dough, play time. Uh, adults, we do Zoom meetings. And and, that's it. And, and here I'm going to jump in and say, find the, the the most effective dose here because someone like me gets tremendous pleasure exercising, but that might create stress for my family who are sitting around waiting for you. So the, your recommendation there on play, um, if you can do it with others, is a really good one. And just to give you an example of that, since the pandemic started, um, we, we've started playing Uno at home, and it's become almost a nightly thing. Well, whatever nights we're all there, it becomes a nightly thing. Usually, instead of dessert or at dessert, it's Uno time. And the joy and fun you have there for 10 minutes just dissipates so much stress mm-hmm. out of the household. So play, what we wrote about this in Matchfish, there is a science around play, just like there's a science around grounding. There is a massive science around play. And actually, uh, we as humans crave play 
we as adults often deprive ourselves of play. So many adults are play deprived or play deprivation, which is very similar to what people get from sleep deprivation. They're irritable, they're tired, they're grumpy, they're not creative. So yeah, laughter, fun and play is a big one. And the fifth one is the 30-minute rule. And again, we get people kicking and screaming, oh, I can't do that, you don't understand my world, my life, just try it, come back to me, see me in a month. <gasps> Andrew, Dr. Tom, it has changed my life. The 30-minute rule, the first 30 minutes of every day, don't check your technology. The last 30 minutes, switch off your technology. So the blue light's not stimulating the pineal gland to release all the chemicals that wake us up. And if you can, in the middle of the day, you would do 30 minutes outside with your shoes off so you're double dipping so they're the five things to do specific to active recovery and and i'm just going to add to that um in in our clinic here we we you know we prescribe liver detox to some clients i think we're on the verge of prescribing technological detox and actually we do when we do those recommendations but i actually think 30 minutes might not be enough for many people and, uh, you know, it, it can create a lot of anxiety and particularly if you've got a lot of pop-ups, it creates a lot of irritability in the brain. And there are some evolving studies showing that this constant popping up on the phones really worries me about the teenagers now because it's mm. non-stop. Um, it actually physiologically alters the wiring in the brain in the part that's associated with irritability. Irritability is a real feature of burnout. So if you are somebody who's, who's, who's getting that irritability, then get those pop-offs off the technology and preferably have some technology detox time, more than 30 minutes if you're one of those people. And, and wearable tech, we often see this, like we get people to have wearable tech for performance intelligence, PQ. Yeah. But then if you've got pop-ups coming on your watch, every time you get a tweet, uh, someone likes your message on Instagram or connects with you on Facebook or an email, you're getting like dozens of these every hour and it just, you're stimulated. So yeah, it's a really good point. Get off the technology, especially before you go to bed, which is number three, which is your one, restorative sleep. Now, you've done a lot in sleep. In fact, we first met, the first program. Now you're reminding me. Is there enough time? Me. I'm going to summarize it. We did. We ran a workshop for a, a, a cohort of workers in the city who work shifts uh, where you would think sleep would be their number one priority. And... I think we stopped about two thirds of the way as we counted two thirds of the group were asleep in the afternoon asleep, yeah. and they were actually asleep. And we, we finished that workshop and we walked out and we looked at each other and we went, either we've got it all wrong or there's a serious problem here. I think we came to this summary, it was both. Because uh, you had so much science and I had so many yeah. PowerPoints. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was dead, dead by science, dead by PowerPoint to a group who had stories. their own lived experience and, uh, and, and perhaps weren't as appreciative of um, the importance of sleep. Well, we're still here, so we must have adapted pretty quick. <laughs> so uh, restorative sleep. So the, the, in a summary, sleep is, is either a symptom of burnout or it's a cause of burnout. And so either way, we have to protect sleep. I think if there's one thing we must protect in our lives, it's our sleep time. The $6 million question is how much time do you need? And so that, that is quite individual. We know the average person, we hear this all the time, seven to eight hours. It's highly individual. Some people can be less, some people can be more. And as a matter of fact, people who sleep more than nine and a half hours, um, that's not necessarily 
better than sleeping six and a half hours. And, and there is body literature showing that people who sleep have prolonged sleep are actually more prone to um, psychological um, symptoms, particularly depression symptoms. So oversleeping is not good. Undersleeping is not good. Once again, we want to find the effect of dose. So here are my tips for restorative sleep. You, we've already talked about switching off devices. If there's one thing I see in our lab that absolutely robs the first two to three hours of recovery, even if you think you're asleep, it's when you've got the blue light in front of your face in bed. So iPads and iPhones have no place in, in the bedroom, in my opinion, for many, many reasons. However, we all do it at different times. So if you are then wearing blue light blocking glasses, switching your phone to night mode, they all ge generally help in a big way. If you're somebody who is really sensitive to that, then recognize that and put the phone down for a minimum 30 minutes before you go to bed. If you're somebody who's less sensitive when you're in stress periods, then make sure you wear the blue light glasses. And that makes a massive difference. My mum and dad, I was talking about this at Easter time with them, just about the addiction we all have on mobile phones, because we're talking about all of our you know, kids and nieces and nephews. And like kids' brains aren't developed, so you can see when kids are on technology all the time and they, 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 they're wired to the dopamine, you take it off them, that they throw massive tantrums. So there's a huge topic for another day about kids and what you teach them on technology. But my dad said, and, and it was just it was beautiful the way he said it, he said, I just don't get it, turn it off. And it was because yeah. in his mind, like mum and dad didn't get mobiles until they would have been in their mid-40s. Uh, I, I didn't get a mobile until I was 30. I was 21. Wow. Wow. So you were an early adopter. I was a resistor because for me, I didn't want to be in this constant contactable switched on state. So for me, it was when I had to have it for work, I got it. Mm. Um, and I have a brother, uh, he'll probably be listening to this in Ireland, who's in his mid 40s, who still doesn't have a smartphone. Really? Yeah. Well, Trev would say to those people listening who've got a smartphone, they're addicted, just turn it off. <laughs> so, <simple. laughs> so thanks, Dad. So that's the first one is to be conscious of your devices, be conscious of, conscious of the impact of your devices on your sleep and recognize when it's actually disrupting your sleep. So maybe giving you feel good hormones at the right, wrong time of the day. It may be waking up your penal gland at the wrong time of the day. Second one is to make sleep a priority. I, I think we take sleep for granted. Uh, we take breathing for granted. We take it for granted our heart's going to beat the next second or 0.6 of a second. Um, we take sleep for granted, but that's not the case. We have to prioritize sleep. And that prioritization starts in the morning. And people will be amazed. What you do in the morning has a massive impact on your sleep at night. And sometimes with clients who have real trouble sleeping, because I think it's about 80 to 90% of people who have chronic sleep problems, it's actually behavioral is, is the issue. And then there's a small proportion, it's a pathological, it's a, something that needs to be dealt with medically. And one of the first things I'll do with clients is I'll say, I want you up earlier. And they were like, but I'm gonna be tired. You will be initially. So up earlier, sunshine earlier, exercise earlier, get all, get the body moving in the morning as the first step and get that pattern going. And that for many people is the lock and key to their sleep at nighttime. So, so just make it a priority from first thing in the morning. The third one is to go to bed and get up at the same time, which is linked to the second one. I, my son said, I'm generally up around five. I'm just one of those early morning people. Didn't used to be, but now I am. My son, who's, uh, you now know, has finished school and he's up around five too. And every morning he comes out and he says, Dad, what are you doing up so early, right? And he's saying it less and less, mm. less. Because now on Saturday, guess who's up early? 
He's up. But is he up on Saturday to go on a mountain bike rider out he's, on, on the bike? He's up to go off having fun. And yes, he'll have an hour sleep in. But this is the same teenager who couldn't get out of bed at 11 in the morning when he was in school. So getting up, going up at the same time, going to bed at the same time, um, the body thrives on that regularity. The biological rhythms adapt and you'll then find your optimal sleep time if you're doing that. You'll never find your optimal sleep time going to bed at midday one night, catching up at 9 p.m. the next one, 11. Your body will never find what's optimum. I'll throw a curveball at you because a number of people listening to this are shift workers. Shift workers. Now, shift workers, um, we should do a podcast on shift work and how to shift your biology. It always shocks me that people who do shift work rarely get taught how to manipulate mm. the environment to manipulate their biology. I've got more ED and human factors rattling around the back of my brain. Let's let's do one. We'll do one upcoming. Yes, because there's not a solution to that, but just one top tip for that. Create nighttime conditions before you go to bed in the morning. Yep. Create daytime conditions when you get up, even if it's the evening. And, and the, the dark glasses, when you finish shift work, if it's of a morning and you go home, don't get lots of sunlight. Do the opposite glasses. Yeah, I, I used to recommend that for a long time until I had a colleague do that and fall asleep and crash driving home. So I'm careful about recommending the dark glasses now. Um, so I talk about that transition period. So yes, dim glass, sunglasses, but not. But you've got to be careful with that because not, not welding goggles. Yeah, and of course, the, what you do on the first night coming off shift work to what you do on the third night are completely different because your body. But it takes fifty six days for your body to switch completely nocturnal. So in, if you're working two or three nights or one or two nights, you're not shifting your, your your circadian patterns, and it's ridiculous to try. What you've got to do is just manipulate it enough to get enough biological Thomas, recovery. Mental note: so podcast coming up. Back for the third time, shift work. I, th I think that'll be a good one, really good one. So number four, keep the bedroom cool and dark. That links into your pre-bedtime, your your um, uh, wake-up time. And I probably could add to that too. If, if when the time of the year is right, if you can use light to wake yourself up, it is way more effective on your biology than an alarm clock. Way more effective. Um, but once again, for light to wake you up, you need to have a regular pattern of going to bed reasonably at the same time getting up reasonably at the same time. Well, don't, you don't need to be a robot here, but there should be a half hour sort of either side that your body's able to. If you get this right, you'll never need an alarm clock. You, you will wake up naturally. And number five, um, and this is really important, uh, and it's a, an area I've studied. You should not, I think we have it wrong having our large meals in the evening time. Many societies would prove you right on this too. Um, we shouldn't have these large, full, big meals in the evening time. In my opinion, that should be breakfast. And, uh, and, and some clients, I actually get them to reverse their meals around and have their what would be their dinner to have that in the morning and what would be their breakfast to have that in the evening. And that can be the unlock to their sleeping because while your body's digesting that, the engine is running away overnight. When it should be on idle, it's accelerating up and down, trying to digest, trying to process, liver's working, blood sugar doesn't come down as quick, heart rate doesn't come down as quick, blood pressure doesn't come down because your body's still working for the first four or five hours to digest that meal, particularly if you have that meal after 7 p.m. So that 9 p.m. dinner time is a real death to sleep. So that's the first one. Alcohol we've talked about earlier. I think most people, when we do the physiological monitoring, get away with one unit of alcohol, be half a glass of wine or, or one small beer. Most people get away with, that, with minimum disruption. Once you go above that, you absolutely are 
decrease in the recovery parasympathetic system. The question is for how long? And I have to admit here, all beer and all alcohol and all spirits are not the same in this department. And so that might be another discussion another day. So limit alcohol, particularly in two to three hours before sleep. So if you're somebody who's sipping wine all night and you then find that you've actually drank three glasses of wine overnight, the first three to four hours of your sleep, you will be sleep but you will not be physiologically recovering. And the chances are you will not feel recovered in the morning. Um, and sugar is another one. Um, we really should sh limit sugar late night. surprised us when we first started doing heart rate monitoring and people would have a massive spike in yeah. heart rate, uh, a spike in sympathetic activation. We go, oh, did you have alcohol? No. Uh, were you watching TV or have an argument with your spouse? No. What did you do? I had a massive bowl of ice cream or I had a big piece of sugary cake. We see the spike. Yeah, and, and so for some people it does help them to get off to sleep because you get the, the sugar spike, insulin spike, and then you get the lull and tiredness afterwards. So I think some people it becomes that habit that gets them off to sleep. Do it long enough and you get the reverse. So I think it's, it's a now and then thing. It's not a every other night thing. So that's my, my five for sleep. Number four is physiological capacity. Now, we've covered a lot on this as well earlier in the interview, but for people listening, like what is it? Like, it's a big word, physiological capacity. What is it? What does that look like to have physiological capacity? Hey, I hate to break it, Andrew. It's two words. Um, they're big words. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. Go, just cracking yourself up. This is good. This is they're, building they're, they're, fun, laughter, they're, they're, play, and joy. I'm talking to, uh, talking to an elite sports person, elite sports coach, physiologist. <laughs> two words. What I mean by physiological capacity here is your, is your ability, your physiological capability. And so it's, it'd be natural to say it's physical fitness, but it's more than physical fitness. It's actually about optimizing your physiological state. Now, part of that is physical fitness, of course, cardiorespiratory fitness. When we talk about physical fitness, we're generally referring to cardiorespiratory fitness, generally talking about heart and lungs. That's really, really important, that alone, because we know that people who have higher cardiorespiratory fitness, we measure it through VO2 max. We know that they generally have higher heart rate variability um, because that's one of the ways of determining it. And people with higher heart rate variability have higher stress resilience, so they can take on more stress before the stress overcomes their coping. So, so there's a link there between cardiorespiratory fitness, higher heart rate variability, and better stress resilience. And I mean mental stress and physiological stress, because if you're, if you're able to reduce your heart rate because you've got better cardiovascular fitness, you recover better at night. Mm. If you're able to raise it quickly in response to stressors, that's actually a healthier heart. It's less prone to stress-related diseases, and you live longer. People with higher heart rate variability live longer. Some of our mammal friends, middle-aged males in Lycra, struggle when we tell them this, but physiological capacity is not doing hundreds and hundreds of low, slow kilometers on the bike where you flush your body with cortisol, you've, you've, you've humor, your hormone levels drop because you're not doing any resistance training as well. We're talking about short, sharp bursts. So to improve VO2 max, like interval training is the best way to do that. So we're not saying you have to exercise for hours. It's You mentioned before, what's the minimal dose? It is finding a minimal dose. And, um, and, the, and the opposite of that, of course, is not doing a high intensity um, training session every single day either because that will create a constant stress response. It's about finding the effective dose. And, and I think 
you know, one of the problems with many prescriptions of exercise is that it's a one fits all. And as you know, in our lab, we, we actually look at genetic profiles to then determine what's likely to be the best exercise prescription. Um, I'm not suggesting everybody needs to do that. You do need a base of low intensity. You need short bursts of high intensity, but you absolutely from the age of 30 plus must incorporates resistance training as well because part of the ability to adapt to stress is to have ability to absorb the stress i'm smiling but you had a go at me before about one word hearing you now talk about you absolutely have to do resistance training just makes my heart warm and i chuckle because you had to start doing that right i did i in that that period of time there where i was talking about where i absolutely was burnt out from doing 20 24 hours a week of endurance long 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 training Part of switching it around and part of normalizing DHEAS, part of normalizing testosterone, part of allowing the liver to regenerate was actually almost having that endurance training and and doing more resistance training. So um, I have had that lived experience and that is about creating capacity because if you keep your testosterone up then you're less prone to low testosterone type disorders and if you keep your vitamin d level up which is another part of of um, uh, physiological capacity then you make yourself less prone once again to low testosterone less prone to depression symptoms so it's about optimizing your physiology in a natural way i'm not talking about taking pills i'm talking about through your activities through your through everything that you do and of course physical exercise resistance training and uh, number two here was to uh, incorporate low doses of high intensity training one of the things that's often spoken about in the longevity um, literature is that you should go anaerobic every day the question is how much. The maximum time you probably ever really need to be working your heart rate up, you know, above 90% of your maximum is probably six minutes in total in any of those high intensity sessions with loads of recovery in between. So it's short, short little bursts. The third one is to go green. And we've written a lot about this. And I mean, green is to spend time in nature. And we could do a whole podcast on the benefits of being in nature, green spaces. It is not It is not pseudoscience. Um, it is absolutely Blue science. too. Blue spaces, there's more around that with oceans as well. Blue spaces as well, yeah. Unless you're like me, afraid of the grey men in suits into the ocean. But other than that, green or blue spaces. And the last one, and, we, and we've, we've talked about this across the whole podcast, safeguard your sleep. I, I think you've got, as soon as you lose quality of sleep, as soon as you lose quantity of sleep, you are on the path to adrenal insufficiency. You are on the path to burnout. Um, there's no, you know, it's one of the guarantees, and that's why I've put it last here in the physiological, is that you can do your aerobic exercise, you can do your resistance training, you can do your high intensity training. You, you can eat really good natural foods, which of course is a, a really important um, activity. You can be doing all these things perfect but if you are not getting adequate sleep you won't get the benefit mm. and on natural healthy foods again we could talk about that for hours but it's food in its most natural state yeah so yeah if you can get something from the sky in the ground from the ocean i've told you this story i'm teaching my kids this about natural foods so in natural environments and Archie wanted to know, what does a chisel tree look like? Maybe there's no such thing as a chisel tree. And when we often get asked in workshops, right, like when you read ingredients, what are the best ingredients on labels? Yeah. No ingredients yeah. on labels. Get stuff that is fresh produce. So I, I have one tip for people on this because I think it is impossible to 
to in this current environment to eat everything natural. But for me, if if a food has more than four ingredients in it, really ask yourself, do you need to eat that? Because that's that's termed an ultra processed food and ultra processed foods are associated with a lot of bad things. So just keep asking yourself, is this got food got more than four ingredients in it? And if it does, uh, do I really need to eat this? Is there an alternative? And if, and if you use that, you'll actually be amazed how your diet will shift really quickly. It's ridiculous to tell people don't eat anything out of a can or a jar or a package just in today's society. But if you use the four ingredient rule, um, you'll really clean your food up. Number five, social connectedness. Now, for thousands of years, we've belonged in communities. Humans crave connection. No man or no woman can live as an island. And I'm not talking about connection on your mobile phone, you know, <laughs> Wi-Fi or low battery life. How often do people stress out when they haven't got connection, but technology connection? But Tom, we need to be connected with others. And you said way at the start of this podcast, one of the three key things we see in burnout is cynicism. And what often happens with people on that burnout continuum is they withdraw, you know, withdraw from doing all the great things you spoke about from physical capacity. They withdraw from all the natural things I spoke about, about active recovery. Uh, they, they have got a refined purpose or a defined purpose. They don't connect with that. But withdrawing from others is really dangerous. In fact, it's so dangerous now, loneliness is becoming an epidemic. Yeah. And, and it's, there's many angles to this. So yeah, of course, they withdraw as a symptom. It is an absolute recipe for a tsunami that's coming down the road and the literature is already identifying it a tsunami of burnout, a tsunami of mental unwellness, a tsunami of disconnection. Um, I, I, you know, we could talk about this all day and I probably got animated because I am seeing oh, I it firsthand, see. seeing it firsthand how this is playing out and, and there will be carnage just from this one factor in relation mm. to burnout. I could see you shift. You've, you've really got demonstrative. I could hear the emotion in your voice. It's good. It's real. We can't change what's happening in hospital settings. And I, I feel for you and the hospital workers, doctors, nurses, carers, it's tough, right? I don't know how you train for that. But I'm going to quote Dr. Nicola outside of hospitals. We can be socially isolated, yet still connected. Absolutely. And, and, and we, know that, we know that from the loneliness literature, you know, that loneliness is actually a very poor prognostic um, factor for, for well-being, but particularly for a long life. Um, we know that we know about 60% of married people report high high other scales of loneliness. So you can be around people, but you're not, not reconnected. You can be in a relationship and yeah. lonely. But I think the point I was making a minute ago is that um, we absolutely have to recognize the impact of social, social isolation on people's natural connectedness because we all do connect in different ways with different people. Some people get more pleasure out of their connection at the coffee shop in the morning with the with the person who's delivering the coffee, then perhaps they're even getting in their own family. Some of that's pulled away here. Um, and if we recognize that um, and, and then put in strategies to deal with that, um, we need, we, we're on the road to preventing that that as a trigger of burnout. Well, two governments have obviously heard you before and they've taken your lead, United Arab Emirates and also the UK government. Uh, you know, in, in England now, they have a minister for loneliness. I think that's yeah, typical yeah. of the English. Yeah. Let's call it what the problem is. It's loneliness. Whereas the United Arab Emirates, they've got a minister for happiness. So they're the same things. But interesting, right, that two governments, a bit of fun about what they've called it. Yeah. But those governments have identified that loneliness is an epidemic, not just around relationships, but the 
economic cost as well when people have mental health issues, not connected, don't feel socially supported. The five factors on social connectedness that we all can do. Number one is strengthen relationships. Now, whether that is virtual or social, work on your relationships. And we wrote about this in MatchFit. I, I had to turn myself around and focus on relationships. What you focus on grows. If you let your relationships sort of die and wither on the vine, they will die and wither on the vine. Give them time, give them effort, give them energy. The second thing is find your tribe. And I love that word tribe. You know, being back in sport, watching the Parramatta Eels play, or you just see people come into the game wearing the blue and the yellow and they're just tribal and you've got such a range of people from different occupations, different socioeconomic classes. But when that bell goes or that whistle is blown, they're a collective group. And it's interesting whether you win or lose, I think the emotions walking out are quite yeah. different as well. <laughs> but your tribe could be a work tribe. It could be a community tribe. It could be an ocean swimming tribe. Uh, it could be playing cards. Something where you're with a bunch of people where you have a common shared interest and a collection coming together. The third one, I call this the physical activity double dip. You and I have mm. introduced a new word to the lexicon, which is a spat, that, a yeah. spin and chat, which yep. is a bike ride and chat. Yeah. So Dr. Tom and I, about every month, we'll go for a bike ride for 90 minutes or so and we'll have a chat. We don't do much interval training on that because it's a good conversation. But, you know, train with people, go for a walk, do weights. Uh, it's... Well, as I think of it, you're not just a double dip, it's a triple or quadruple dip. I was going to say, if you if you can do that work meeting, walking with somebody barefoot around the oval, you're getting sunshine, it's it's a... It's, it's it definitely, four or five? I, I, I don't know what you call five, six, seven, eight dip, but it's... Um, I mean, once again, it's just about being as doing things in as more natural state as you can. Yeah, I think there's a common theme that's coming through loud and clear on that. Number four is related to that. Ditch the digital devices as well. Connect with people, not with technology. Underscore, sometimes now we can only connect with people through technology. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. but you use it to connect, not to uh, abuse or not to just rely upon Facebook, social media, you know, the rubbish. You, you go to Instagram and an hour later, you're watching cat videos. Time flies. Yeah, and, and that area is changing too in that um, you know younger people's connection through social media versus all those middle-aged connection through social media versus older individuals are very, very different. Um, we didn't grow up with them. They do. And so, but it's when that becomes an extreme, it's a real issue. Mm -hmm. um, but for many, many younger people, that is their natural connection now. Um, and in some ways, I gives me a lot of heart that I think younger people um, will, may come out of this a lot better than we think because they're used to this virtual connection, uh, whereas we're far more used to interpersonal interaction in, in the physical form. I watch my kids adapt to remote learning. Yeah, so yeah, quick, so yeah. much faster. And we're like adults still a month later. Where's the my? You're on mute. Yeah, <laughs> How often yeah. have we heard that? <laughs> uh, and the fifth one is reach out. Uh, reach out. If you're really struggling and you don't know where to go, reach out to us, to Dr. Tom or I. Um, go to this podcast. You'll see all the contact details for our relevant businesses and social media. Reach out if you're in an organization, if you have an EAP. Reach out to a family member. Reach out to a friend. Don't, don't do this by yourself. That's right. And, and I think there is a, a discussion around who to reach out to here. And we know with sort of burnout, that's the trigger is in organizational is, is so the organization is the burnout for that individual's trigger that that the support they would get at work 
might, for many people, might actually be more effective than the support they'll get at home. Uh, the person at home may not understand the context, may not understand the scenario, uh, may not may not really may may be trying to listen but may not understand. And so, whereas on a personal level, the person at home is going to know you better and is going to empathise with you, what you're feeling better, etc. So, you know, it's not a for different people got to reach out to for different things in different ways. Um, but the big thing I would say here is um, reach out, just reach out to whoever you trust to get that advice. And if you need professional advice, it's it's not a shame thing. It's actually the brave thing to do. It's the thing you need to do. We have been living, breathing burnout and coming up with strategies in a proactive way to help people. As you said, there's a tsunami coming. That scares me listening to you say that. But these factors we've spoken about, we can stand by them from evidence and experience that if you follow these five factors, you are going to inoculate yourself against burnout. So let's do a summary of the five. Number one, we want people to be driven by purpose, so that purpose alignment. Number two is active recovery. Number three is restorative sleep. Number four is expand your physiological capacity. And number five is social connectedness. Uh, we've spoken about lots. I've loved mm. the conversation. Always learn more when we when we converse. For people who'd like to download the white paper, go to andrewmay.com slash burnoutproof and you'll be able to download the resource there with a couple of other resources we put on that site. So andrewmay.com slash burnoutproof and you can get the white paper, which it goes into a lot of depth around what we've spoken about today. It's been a pleasure, Andrew. I um, look forward to the next one. Yeah, well, I think we've already locked it in, aren't we? We're going to do shift work. So, Dr. Tom, thank you as always. Uh, love sharing the mic with you. Different one, this one. It was a not an interview. It was a dual interview or dual discussion. discussion. So nice to keep us dancing and learning as well. Thank you. No, my pleasure. Hey, it's Andrew, and we hope you enjoyed that episode. We would really appreciate it if you helped us amplify the Stride Stronger with Andrew May podcast by sharing episodes with colleagues and friends and going to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. This really does help us get this message out to a wider audience. And if you would like to know more about how Strive Stronger uplifts teams through optimizing human performance and well-being, make sure you check out strivestronger.com. And if you'd like to know more about my personal practice, focusing on all things human performance, go to andrewmade.com where you can explore the books I have written including MatchFit, which has now sold over 85,000 copies, or book me as a speaker at your next annual conference or company offsite, or if you'd like to really turbocharge your business and personal success and wake up to a better way of living, working and leading, check out my brand new evidence-based Human Performance Academy that starts in July. I'm really, really looking forward to getting that going. And if you'd like to receive regular updates from me each month, make sure you subscribe to my monthly e-newsletter, The AM Edition.